Our passage for reflection this morning is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. Mark chapter 9, verses number 2 through to 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listening to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Amen. Brethren, this is. A familiar passage that we all know and is commonly known as um, transfiguration. There's a recording of a transformation that took place in the appearance of Jesus before his disciples, that's Peter, James, and John. And I want to use this passage to share some few thoughts with you this morning. It is important for us to know that Mark is not the only gospel writer who records this passage. It is also recorded in Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Mark agrees that the event occurred after six days. On the other hand, Luke says that it took place after eight days. But we are not here to establish the precision of these accounts. Instead, to focus on the important lessons that we can deduce for ourselves and as ministers of the gospel. In verse 2, we are told that the Lord took Three of his disciples, and as I have said, Peter, James, and John. But the way the verse 2 is put, it reveals how these three people were selected. It reads, and after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and leads them to the high mountain in private alone. And he was transformed in front of them. The Greek word, that is translated as takes, shows a present reality as though the whole episode were still fresh on the mind of the writer at the time he was composing his gospel. It also suggests that there was a deliberate action on the part of the Lord. In other words, it is the Lord who selected or who chose the disciples and led them to the mountain. So it wasn't as it were the disciples influencing the selection. It was Jesus who decided and who chose the three. Again, the Greek word that is translated lead in the text presupposes that Jesus led the disciples and then the disciples followed him alone to the mountain. And the Bible says that while they were there and waiting, Jesus was transfigured before them. His outward appearance changed. His face shone like the sun, 
and his clothes became dazzling white. What that means is that it allowed the disciples to, if you like, catch a glimpse of his inner glory. And having experienced the glory, Peter said, it is good we are here. Why? Because there they have seen the glory of God fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And the presence of the glory of God that they saw deepened their understanding about the identity of Jesus Christ. Concealing the actual event from them would have perhaps defeated the purpose for selecting and leading them on the mountain. There was no secrecy as to the occurrence of this uniquely miraculous event. The passage reveals that two prominent Jewish leaders who had left the world long before the coming of the Messiah appeared as Moses and Elijah. And the passage mentions that these two personalities were conversing or talking with Jesus. The mention of these two personalities strikes an important chord in Old Testament theology. Though the verse 4 cannot be easily explained on the evidence of the test, both Elijah and Moses was both a prophet and a law giver. We know that Moses played an instrumental role in the coming of the law, and this helps us to appreciate why he is notably associated with the law. On the other hand, Elijah can be remembered for his active role in fighting against pagan and ungodly practices in Israel. Their appearance strikes an interesting note in that it suggests both a continuity and discontinuity. It is a continuity because it situates Christ's ministry within the context of Old Testament covenant. What this possibly implies is that Christ's ministry is given a huge boast and legitimacy by tracing it both to Old Testament law and prophecy. However, their appearance may also represent a discontinuity with the old administration, which is often denoted by the Old Testament. With the coming of God in Christ, the old covenant gave way to the new. In Christ, God has drawn closer to humanity in spite of his awesomeness, in spite of his omnipotence, and in spite of his comprehensibility. The text unambiguously again reveals that the two Old Testament personalities, as I said earlier, conversed with Jesus. And that suggests that the event indeed took place. And hence, its historicity is beyond question. In the presence of these two prominent Jewish leaders, in verse 5, Peter suggests the building of three tabernacles. But while Peter was speaking, the Bible says that the voice of heaven elevates Jesus above Peter, above Moses, and above Elijah, saying, this is my son whom I love, listening to him. And when that voice came, suddenly the two disappeared. The disappearance of the two speaks to us of the primacy of Jesus. And it is interesting that God the Father did not say, listening to Moses, listening to Elijah, but he said, listening to him. That's listening to Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what lessons are there in this transfiguration for us as ministers? 
and as preachers of the gospel, it has become clear that we must always allow Jesus to take the initiative as was aptly demonstrated in the test. It was he, that's Jesus, who chose and not the other way around. In ministry, the propensity of becoming bosses cannot be ignored. Sometimes we assume that because we are in charge of congregations, we are untouchable. Remember that the transfiguration was not supposed to be an event for Christ to show off his glory, but instead it was meant to affirm his identity in a divinely prescribed manner. Very often we allow fame, we allow power, we allow money to derail us from God's chosen path. We then become power drunk and fame chases. But the humility, the composure Christ teaches us in this narrative should be enough for us, should be enough for our guide as ministers of the gospel. Our position as ministers is not for us to show off for people to know that, oh, we are in charge. Instead, to avail ourselves for the light of the gospel to shine through us to other people of the world in order to disperse any form of darkness. And this can be possible when we humble ourselves and make Christ the focus of our ministry. The issue of who must lead and who must follow also comes very clear in this narrative. It was Jesus who led while his disciples followed. We must not forget that the work of ministry is the work of the, the triune God. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who is leading the church. And we have been given the privilege to be part of it. What it means, therefore, is that we must always not go ahead of the triune God. We must not go ahead of Jesus. We must not go ahead of them. We must always allow Jesus to lead and to direct us. Hallelujah. Again, we have seen that the selection and the leading of the three disciples was as a present or daily reality. What this impresses on us is that we must always see the Lord's calling as an ever-present reality. And if we are able to do this, then our commitment or zeal for his work will naturally and always revive itself to keep us with the refreshment of his call. The transfiguration was never shrouded in secrecy. As ministers, let us move away from any underhanded dealings. We must not secretly meet with corrupt state officials just because we need them to extend some favors to us and all that. Let us not forget that as ministers, we have been called to be light of this world. And we must always try as much as possible to shine. Lastly, the transfiguration was a place of privilege and relevance. How are we making ourselves? How are we making our ministries? And how are we making the gospel that we have been called to preach relevant to the people of our time? Let us not forget that Peter, James, and John was given that privilege and they made use of it. God has given us the privilege as men and women of God. We need to make ourselves, we need to make our lives, and we need to make the message of God relevant to the people among whom we do missions. In conclusion, 
I wish to draw your attention once again to the salient lessons the Transfiguration teaches us. Much as it is a historical event, and it was supposed to be an affirmatory exercise for Christ's own ministry, it also provides us with a firm moral basis upon which our lives and ministry can be shaped. We must use the ethical or moral lessons we have drawn to transform our lives and the larger society in which we do ministry. As the Lord reveals himself more to us in power and radiance, this should not bloat our egos, but should rather humble us, knowing that the creator of the universe could humble himself to live with us. This should inspire us to be humble enough to associate with the poorest and the weakest people among us. The Lord bless us and bless his word in Jesus' name. Amen.